Greetings, dear listeners. We had the great Walter Russell Mead on this week to talk about his magisterial new book, Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. The book is anchored in the story of U.S.-Israeli relations, but the book is really about America, how its beliefs, its sense of identity, and its fiercely democratic politics create its foreign policy. It's a book only Walter could write, a worthy follow-up to his famous work, Special Providence. We hope you enjoy the rich conversation as much as we did, and check out the book as a result. On to the show. So I don't know, Walter. I guess I guess the the um, the fun thing about reading this book is that that as long as I've known you, almost you've been working on this book, <laughs> and uh, um, and I remember uh, when you started working on the book, uh, the the uh, the the sort of core uh, character of interest uh, was also in the news back then, as he is today, as sort of a a a figure of uh, of. Um, of concern and criticism among the intellectuals, John Mearsheimer. So I don't know if you could tell us a little bit about the the genesis of the book and and um, and uh, and and how it came to be. All right. Well, I you know I don't want to make it too much about John Mearsheimer because I don't really think it is specifically. But if you go back to the kind of early mid two thousands, there were a lot of people who thought or who said that the Iraq War was essentially something that a bunch of American Jewish neoconservatives were foisting on the rest of the country because Israel wanted the war. And also that the policies of the Bush administration represented the power of the American Jewish community. And, you know, knowing as many members of the American Jewish community as I do, I, you know, that, that struck me as odd. And if you look into it, um, you know, look closely into it, very few people in Israel believe that sort of neoconservative theories that, you know, the Arab world was simply waiting for American troops to come in and establish democracy. And then, as some people actually argued at that time, Iraq would embrace Israel because as a democracy, there would be no trouble. This is not the way Israelis think. Um, and at the same time, if you looked at the polls or even if you looked at the statistics on how were American Jewish voters voting and how were American Jewish campaign contributors contributing, they were going much more for Bush's opponents than for Bush. And so you ask yourself, why not just in the United States, but around the world, are people essentially blaming the American Jewish community for the actions of a president it voted against and for policies that it doesn't like? Hmm. And that, you know, it struck me, whenever you find something that is clearly not true, but that everybody thinks, then, you know, as a, as a writer, as a thinker, I say, well, that's something I want to know more about. Uh, and, it, and it got me involved in a long process. And maybe say? say a couple words about the Israel Lobby, the book that John Mearsheimer and um, Stephen Walt, Walt co-authored, yeah. I guess sometime in the mid-2000s. I just wanted to bring that up because I remember that it was a pretty big deal at the time and some people liked it. A lot of people um, didn't like it for, for reasons that you, you mentioned, but maybe just bring us back to 
what that book um, contributed or didn't contribute to the public conversation for for listeners who may not remember okay. that whole um, hullabaloo. All right. Well, uh, it's very long ago, but let me see what I can do. That you know, it. I mean, there's always been a certain idea that the reason America has a pro-Israel policy or that the forces in America supporting a pro-Israel policy can basically be traced back to the American Jewish community and perhaps also in some cases to white evangelicals. And this is this is this was a view long before the Israel lobby was written. It's a view long after the Israel lobby has been written. It's a very persistent point of view. And I think, again, it, it became, uh, and there's certain areas in American intellectual life where that view, um, you know, seems to, to put down roots. And one of them, I, I think, is that there are realist scholars of international relations who don't see any real American national interest or much American national interest in the Middle East. And they see this tremendous American concentration on the Middle East. I mean, when you, when you look, I think there has simply been no diplomatic process in the history of the United States that has consumed the attention of so many presidents and secretaries of state for so many years as the, uh, the so-called peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, and so realists, and, and you have the two Gulf Wars, uh, deep relationships with Saudi Arabia, the various conflicts uh, with Iran, or before that, the American involvement with the Shah. And so people who don't see, who are realists and believe that states act in accordance with their interests, but who don't see Nash, a strong national interest of any kind in the Middle East, look at that, and it's something that cries out for an explanation. And the only explanation that really comes to mind is an Israel, you know, somebody, somebody in America who's very powerful and cares less about the American national interests than about the welfare of Israel. And I think that's how you, you get to this. The, 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 the book is um, anchored in, in U.S.-Israeli relations and the history of, but it really struck me reading it. Um, how much it's uh, it's really a continuation of, I mean, again, not surprisingly, it's it's your book, but of 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 uh, the previous books that you've written about this. It's a book about um, about America and about American foreign policy, how it's made. If you can say a little bit about about you know the national interests, um, I don't have the the passage here highlighted, uh, but but. It, Early on, you sort of really, I think, problematized that exact question of what right. constitutes national interest. And especially in the American context, um, the first part of the, the, the book is, is incredibly enlightening for, for me uh, as, as, you know, uh, mostly a, a secular person who doesn't even know this history that well about the, the role of religion and uh, the role of Protestantism in, in shaping conceptions of what the national interest right. might be. Yeah, the national interest is one of these concepts that seems radiantly clear and obvious, um, but in actual practice turns out to be very complicated. In some ways, it's like the true value of a stock, of a share of stock. Uh, and everyone says, well, the price, you know, there are all these market theories about why the price at any given moment does or doesn't represent the, reflect the true value of a stock. But I mean, inherently, a stock price depends on things that you can't possibly know, like future events 
other companies and the actions of other companies, technologies that may be invented, legislative acts, public taste. So um, when people think about the value of the stock, inevitably what they're doing is they're bringing to it a lot of assumptions about how the world works, where, how the world is going to work, how economics works, where politics is headed, all of these things. And out of that, they come to a sense of what, what is a share of IBM going to be worth? Um, the national interest is a lot like that. Um, you know, for example, just to take, you know, what should we be doing about China and Taiwan? Uh, I'm saying this because we're doing this podcast at a time where Speaker Pelosi has just visited Taiwan, the great consternation. Um, well, you might say, well, the national interest really requires us to take a strong stand because an aggressive China uh, is threatening Taiwan. If it takes Taiwan, Japan will be isolated and so on and so on and so on. And that's true. But then suppose, you know, two years from now, there's a massive economic failure in China. The central government more or less collapses and China goes through a period in some ways comparable to what Russia did after 1989, the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, then everybody would say, boy, all those people who thought that the American national interest required a massive military buildup in Taiwan, how stupid were they? And how, you know, and the point is that there is really no way we can know today what is going to happen in China, and therefore questions of the national interest with respect to China. Or Xi Jinping might might have a heart attack and be replaced by someone who just wants good relations. Or, or better yet, Xi Jinping might, might suddenly have a religious awakening and decide that he needed to become the man, great man of peace. Anything could happen. Hmm. So the national interest is never some, it's, it's not like you don't determine the national interest the way a scientist or a meteorologist determines the temperature. Look at a good thermometer and you just know. So how do people think about the national interest? Um, what strikes them as probable? What events in the world strike them as important and significant while others are insignificant? All of this depends on cultural assumptions, economic perceptions, personal experience, and then in a democratic society where you have all kinds of groups, different lobbies, different political parties, different ideological groups, all competing to control government and all constantly making trade-offs and compromises in order to advance other things. You know, the, the relationship of the objective foreign national interest, which can only rarely be seen clearly and can never be known for sure, and actual policy choices at any given moment is always going to be a very complex thing. Hmm. Hmm. And I think it becomes complicated when we talk about Israel, because I think your your book does an amazing job of making the case that when we talk about Israel, we're not really just talking about Israel. Israel is a proxy. It's a symbol. It represents all these other things in the American imagination. Um, and that there's almost a sense that, uh, you know, Israel is some kind of shining city on the hill. It's an example of divine providence. You know, at, at least that's that's how some people view it. And particularly evangelicals might attach some of these ideas to Israel. And I think that those deep cultural assumptions, I think your argument is that, okay, there might be a pro-Israel lobby, but we're missing the point if we don't look at the deep cultural 
um, aspects that make Americans feel close to Israel. I mean, Israel re represents something to them. Well, also it's, you know, the, the cause and effect relationship between public sentiment and the strength of a lobby is pretty important. Um, you know, so for example, I mean, American predisposition in favor of Zionism is privileged pro-Zionist political organization among Jews, American Jews, over other kinds of political organization. So in the 1930s, American Jews looking at the world could see sort of, you know, several things that they were interested in. Many American Jews at the time were strong socialists and wanted you know, the New Deal to move much further to the left. Um, many American Jews were deeply worried about the rise of Hitler and anti-Semitism generally in Europe at that time and wanted much stronger American policies about anti-Semitism. Many others were really worried about Jews being trapped in anti-Semitic Europe and wanted more immigration visas for Jews to come to the United States. But those kinds of lobbying were were bitterly criticized, you know, sort of you raise the immigration specter and then somebody whose grandmother is a Polish Christian and would like to come to America says, what, you want your Jewish grandmother to jump the line and get in ahead of my grandmother? And there was a sense of those kinds of lobbies cut, torched off anti-Semitism. But on the other hand, American Jews saying, well, we want a homeland, like the Irish have a homeland and the Polish have a homeland, and we want America to support that aspiration. You know, that got a very different reception. And in some, you know, the American Jewish community um, in the 1920s, 30s, and up really until early 40s, the, the leadership of the American Jewish community is pretty consistently anti-Zionist. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, America a country makes its lobbies. Then again, you look at, you try to think about the power of different political lobbies. One thing I say in the book is our discussion of lobbies today is confused in much the same way at the time of the founding fathers, the discussion of parties was confused. And everybody said, oh, I don't want to be the representative of a party. I want to be the representative of the nation. And in the same way, I don't want, today we'd say, I don't want to be in, representing a special interest. I want to represent the general interest. I don't want to be a lobby. Um, but in fact, parties were essential and lobbies are essential in a complex democratic society. How else can people who share a common set of interests, whether they're ideological like human rights or whether they're economic like steel manufacturers, how can they sort of affect the political process? How can the political process work without lobbies? It can't. So you look, you have to think about lob, their different lobbies and different kinds of lobbies. I find the tobacco lobby really interesting because I'm old enough to remember when the tobacco lobby was considered the irresistible lobby in American politics. Nobody could touch the tobacco lobby. When the tobacco lobby said a certain politician was against smokers' rights, that was the phrase. Wow. That, would, that would torch your career. Um, and the smoker, you know, and the, and the tobacco, big tobacco was considered, you know, the great behemoth of Capitol Hill. Some years later, if it was found out that a politician had accepted contributions from the tobacco lobby, like that could torch your career. So public sentiment changed and the power of the lobby changed. Now, there's still a tobacco lobby. You saw that movie probably, Thank You for Not Smoking. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it still works. 
But in the old days, the public, the, the tobacco lobby would seek publicity. It would want everyone to know what it was, what it was standing for. Today, the tobacco lobby would just as soon deal in back rooms and not have a lot of publicity. Its opponents want the publicity. I think that the Israel lobby um, functions in our society more like the AARP or the NRA to to take two Hmm. very different lobbies that are extremely powerful that many politicians really don't want to cross, but not so much because there is this lobby that constitutes a kind of artificial external force in society, but because if you get called anti-gun in large chunks of the country, that's the end of your career. If you're called anti-social security just about anywhere, that's the end of your career. And a lot of the country, if you're if you're called anti-Israel, that can be the end of your career. So I do want to ask, though, about Democratic primaries. I was just reading a New York Times piece earlier mm. today that I think captures a somewhat new development where APAC the um the major pro israel lobby for those um that's the the acronym um and um they have a new super PAC which has been trying to um tip the balance towards one candidate right. over the other in specific districts um and that's become a controversy you know among democrats and progressives and the reason I bring that up is because in these areas, you have younger Democrats who are much more critical of Israel. So to be called critical of Israel doesn't actually hurt you that much. There may actually be young Democrats who want that and who like that. Right, right. But then APAC comes in and puts a lot of money behind the candidate who's more pro-Israel. And that one could argue that that is somewhat artificial, especially you know, these aren't particularly important races. And then this super PAC is coming in and putting a lot of money mm-hmm. in some random district. I mean, right. how would you how, how would you sort of situate that in, in terms right. of understanding um, artificial versus, you know? Right. Well, I, I think first thing I'd probably say is that let's keep a sense of perspective. As you say, these are mostly somewhat unimportant races. They tend to be very safe democratic seats. And the ideological uh, differences between the candidates may not be huge. Um, so the, you know, we should be careful if uh, a lobby group shows the power to affect the outcome in eight out of 10 um, House rep, you know, House votes. And pro-Israel legislation routinely goes through the House sort of 410 to, to some very small number. We're not, we're not talking about some massive intervention that is fundamentally altering the balance of American politics. But at the same time, we should look, you know, one should also compare it, say the, um, uh, you know, this this idea of a lobby figuring out where there's a gap, where you can go in and be very influential is not something APAC invented. I think of um, suddenly everybody is looking at state, secretary of state elections around the country as races that had previously attracted very little money or outside interest. But now after January 6th, these things are seen as potentially extremely consequential. Money is flooding into races. Or you look at the district attorney races where uh, criminal justice reform groups suddenly decided, okay, no, almost no one pays attention to these races, and so a relatively small investment can lead to a relatively small, uh, relatively dramatic result, and it has. 
at least for a while, but then counter forces come in. And so I think myself, I see this as absolutely natural and normal part of the ebb and flow of American politics. This happens all the time on all kinds of issues in both parties and representing all kinds of both foreign and domestic concerns. So again, the fact that one of these is front page news in the New York Times and discussed as sort of a major factor while other interventions aren't really, don't, don't attract that kind of interest or concern. Uh, to me, that's, that's again, just the, the, the fact that wherever the subject of Israel or the, or the concept of Jews is, is involved, suddenly the conversation gets much more intense and emotional and people watch it much more carefully. Yeah. Um, what's, for me, the, uh, the really stunning sort of part of the book um, is, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the sort of first principles kind of stuff and, and really the, the notion of progress. Um, the, the, how, how, how embedded the idea of progress is in America, and yet also how that changes throughout the sort of course of the book. Um, really compelling part of the, the the history of the book for me was the the shift from 19th century Americans um, with ideas about the world, how it's changing, the role of nationalism and how it's tied to democracy, how they think it's tied to democracy and how it, it should be playing out in the world, how that runs into sort of perhaps two things at once. One is the reality of nationalism in Europe and the collapse of the empires and what that that creates. Um, and then the reality uh, after World War II of America having to sort of take on a, a, um, a bigger role in the world. Um, what's striking to me about it is, is I think for someone like me, uh, again, coming more from a European background, though now, you know, uh, fully American uh, uh, to all my European uh, colleagues and friends and family, um, is 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 again the the question of religion how that 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 plays into it and how the american approach to enlightenment is much more tied to a religious concept of salvation than um than i, I the more rationalist european uh, approach to it um and also has this notion of optimism to it i i guess the 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 prompt there is to, to ask you to maybe talk a little bit about that, uh, that question and, and where America is today. Well, you know, the, the formative moments in American, sort of the development of American political culture came out of just a very unusual time in world history, very significant in all kinds of ways. Um, but the period sort of, uh, you know, from the American Revolution or certainly the end of the Napoleonic War up through maybe, you know, the late closing years of the 19th century was, was this period of tremendous optimism, at least in the Atlantic world. Obviously, other places in the world were having very different experiences at this time. But in the Atlantic world, which Americans knew, it looked as if all kinds of fabulous things were happening. And their own history seemed to put them at the kind of spear tip of human progress. And the narrative of history that, that just instinctively resonated with the common sense of most white Americans at this time, and frankly, not just white Americans, was um, this notion that there'd been a wonderful 
peak of classical history, the Greeks and the Romans, the ancient Hebrews, pure Christianity in the early centuries, and then you have the Roman Empire, the barbarian invasion, stagnation, the Middle Ages, the learning is lost, everything is lost, but that a process of renewal had started. It starts with the Renaissance, when scholars rediscover the ancient manuscripts and the ancient culture of Greece and Rome, and these ideas and artistic techniques begin to come out again. And then it takes the next step in the English-speaking world for Protestants, it was the Reformation, which was in religion what the Renaissance was in in general culture, they believe, the recovery of the ancient purity of Christian faith and doctrine. And then on top of that comes the, the sort of rediscovery of the political liberty of the ancient world. And you get the glorious revolution in England in 1688 and the American Revolution, which they see as reestablishing the principles that made Athens great, that made Rome great in its Republican days and so on. So, and, on, and with this comes the technological, the early signs of technological and scientific re revolution, which is obviously opening the door to a new level of human prosperity. They can't not see this as either God or the force working some massive positive transformation and then they look at the United States, this country that if it holds together is obviously going to be a great power, maybe the greatest in the world, which is imbued like no other with these dynamic principles that have the capacity to change the world. This is what they go roaring into the 19th century. You know, that's the momentum behind the way Americans develop a self-conception. And I think much of history since then has been Americans encountering the increasing complexities of the world, both inside and outside the country. And yet somehow this original sense of optimism and progress doesn't leave or leaves only very slowly and reluctantly. Um, and again, one of the reasons why Israel and U.S.-Israel relations, or there, there are two sort of big reasons why they figured. Number one is that Americans began to see themselves as a kind of a latter-day version of Israel. That is, the ancient Hebrews, you know, the only monotheistic people in the ancient world, carrying a truth that was meant for all humanity, but just in this one small nation. Americans would look at their historical situation, read the Hebrew scriptures, which contain the, this history, and could not help in a way, but, but not see the par parallels to their own situation. Then beyond that, there was this, as they thought about this great historic renewal, and this would be true of non-religious as well as religious Americans, um, and by the way, there are actually quite a few non-religious Americans in the 19th century. This mm. idea that America's always been sort of this incredibly religious country now secularizing. And actually, it's really a, a story of waves, um, peaks and valleys of various kinds. But in any case, they looked at, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Israel, ancient Rome, 
and you read the literature and the history and, oh my goodness, those countries were rich and beautiful. Their landscapes were stunningly beautiful. The people were noble and virtuous and powerful and free. Now, and if you look at all of them in the 19th century, Jews, poor, miserable Palestine. Mark Twain compared it, said it was almost as bad as Arizona in terms <laughs> of how it looked. Um, Greece, you know, rocky, barren, the people poor under the Ottoman Empire, Rome, the, the Italy divided between all these dynasties and poor and the peasants superstitious and oppressed, malarial, all of this. And the Americans were saying, you know, if these people would go back to our values, which are the true classical values, you know, become farmers, uh, live under democracy, then their old greatness could return. And if that glory returns, then everybody in the world will see that America is right and that the American sense of history is the, is the right reading. And that will encourage people in other places to join the bandwagon of glory and progress. So Americans were incredibly interested in the Greek War of Independence. Julia Ward Howe's future husband actually was a decorated hero of that war. They were, in, they were enthralled by the movement for Italian unification and independence. They actually tried to get Garibaldi to take a commission as a general in the U.S. Civil War. And they looked at the prospect of the Jews returning to Palestine in much the same way. And Americans actually tried to persuade Jews to start farming in Palestine as a way of beginning to rekindle this. You can go now to the American Colony Hotel in, uh, in Jerusalem and see something that was built as one of these colonizing, originally part of this colonizing effort. So when the Jewish Zionist movement comes along, Americans don't think, oh my gosh, those Jews, they're going to try to impose another one of their outlandish ideas on us, and what are they going to drag us through now? It's more like, oh, finally, the Jews are figuring it out. Now really good things can get started. But but the interesting thing, and and to to build on this, because this is the 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 flip side of of this enlightenment. You you have the an early chapter uh, on on Theodore Herzl and and uh, his coming to realize uh, in in through his short life that that the enlightenment in Europe is in fact not going to save the Jews. That that the prospect of all these enlightenment values, all this optimism, is he has the premonition that that tra tragically comes true. Uh, uh, several decades after he dies. Um, and the flip side is that American Jews, even as sort of Zionist movements appear in America, they say, no, 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 stop with this shit, please. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're integrated. This is good. So in many ways, America is the enlightenment that works. And it's the European enlightenment that fails, uh, for Jews at least, uh, but maybe even more broadly. Well, I do think that you know, that in trying to understand the differences between many American Jews and many Israeli Jews, Israeli Jews are people for whom Herzl was right and that the liberal enlightenment would fail to save the Jews. American Jews are people for whom Herzl was wrong. And in um, the experience of American Jews, liberal values have saved the Jews and given American Jews sort of the kind of integration and acceptance that Jews and other other countries historically could only dream of. So, you know, the, the differences between, you know, both American and Israeli Jews, I think, are quite sincere in their approaches to these problems. 
and the contentions between them, which by no means are not new, more than 100 years old, this, this quarrel, in a sense, between the, the Zionist majority in Israel and the somewhat more liberal majority in, in America, it's, it's a fundamental element of 20th and now 21st century Jewish life. Um, but yes, I've kind of figured, Demir, you would want to bring up problems of limits of the <laughs> Enlightenment and its failures and shortcomings. Something told me that that this might just possibly be coming. And it is true that in the 19th century, this sort of American arc of history ideology was that all things work together for good, that in particular, nationalism democracy and peace go hand in hand and that as Europe as the democrat as nationalism swept across Europe it would lead to democratic revolutions and those democratic revolutions would create a Europe of peaceful nation states each glorying in the diversity that was the beautiful continent of Europe and uh, you know, each going forward in its own way, a great band of brothers and sisters. Yeah. So, so this story, though, of of progress, I think maybe it's worth it's worth bringing up that in this current moment, I think it seems to me that a lot of Americans are losing faith in all the things that you just mentioned. I mean, this narrative arc, this idea that um, if it's good for America, that goodness will emanate in our foreign policy, in the global order, and so forth. I think if you ask most Americans today, do you see the world getting better because of American influence or even without American influence? I think they'll probably tell a darker story of decline. Um, and that I think reflects on their own lack of faith in the American idea, especially young American liberals who don't really feel very enthusiastic about America from a creedal perspective right. or the role that it plays in the world. They tend to think that the more America gets involved in, for, in, in foreign lands, the more it messes things up. And I think you bring this up in, in the book in a very, I think, persuasive way that if you look at U.S. engagement in the Middle East in particular and you focus on that, it does sort of make make one question whether the U.S. can be competent, whether it can actually do good, because it's been an absolute mess. If we look particularly at the post-9-11 post U.S. policy in the Middle East, it isn't a great record. It's a record of disappointment, tragedy, of overreach. So I think that our generation, and we kind of had our formative years post-9-11, I think it's very easy to look at that and say, American power, forget about it. We mess things up. So how do you think that we can regain a sense of that progress or should we be pessimistic and say maybe our time has passed mm -hmm. and the coming American story is one of disappointment and self-doubt? So it's a really good question. You know, as a as a boomer, I find it a fascinating question because what you're describing is exactly how my generation felt in the 1970s. Hmm. Vietnam War, complete disaster, revelation of all the Cold War CIA stuff. Plus, right, uh, people forget this often, but the boomer generation in the 70s was hard hit economically. The inflation, the, the rise in oil prices, 
the most common trope of of generational sort of uh, punditry back then was we would be the first generation who would not American generation to live with a lower standard of living than our parents. And not only that, we were the post-racial secular generation that represented a fundamental break with American cultural traditions. So sometimes as a boomer, when I hear younger people talk that way, I just think it's so cute and so sweet. <laughs> Reminds me of, oh, it's just like us. You want to pinch their cheeks. But I, but I, I restrain. I refrain <laughs> from this. Um, but I think that's actually, again, that's, um, and, and by the way, if you talk to, say, people from the greatest generation, their youth was the 1930s. American capitalism has failed. This was talk about the, the, young, the young left being disillusioned. They were a lot of them were in the commun Communist Party in the 30s. So this notion of, you know, periodic crises of American, of this American ideology um, is, I think, actually, it's, it's one of the patterns that you see. Now, I don't mean to say from this that there's some kind of deterministic, well, as, as the boomers went on to, you know, therefore everyone else will blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to say that, but I am trying to say that there's, this is not new. And, and in fact, because, in a sense, because American ideology is to some degree grounded in the idea that capitalism brings social progress as well as economic progress, and capitalism as an economic system is one that does undergo periodic crises and periodic revolutions that are profoundly destabilizing, it could hardly be otherwise that American society would not be one which experienced regular episodic kind of moments of deep distress and unrest. Now, yeah. obviously, where it goes depends on what happens next. You know, what happened in the 19, you know, after this incredible distress of the 1970s, uh, interest rates go down, the economy starts growing, the boomers are all buying houses. And uh, while, you know, it didn't work out the same for everybody, the j younger generations look at the boomers and, oh, you, you were the ones, everything, you, you're the golden generation, everything you wanted, you got. You also got Reagan, though, who, as a leader, was able to tap into, and the, the latter half of the book talks about the, the, the Sunbelt Coalition that he's able to, to right. basically bring together and how that plays into U.S.-Israeli um, relationships and how Israel is almost, again, like a, a plays a totemic role in sort of uh, keeping that together. What's striking about that parallel, though, the boomer parallel, is that, um, I mean, I guess one could, could point at the, call it the, the you know... Uh, the dark years of, of Nixon, where there was just America seemed unmoored from its moral uh, mm -hmm. uh, bases. But then, I don't know, I, you've, you've lived through both of them. Trump seems to me to have, though taken it to a different level, right? That in the sense that, that if we, we, we debate this all the time, you know, uh, I, I think we generally agree Trump's a phenomenon as much as anything else of these larger things that you're talking about, but also of this kind of uh, uh, ongoing sense of doubt about the project and he pops up and represents it to the nth degree right. and and uh makes use of it to the nth degree i mean pushes yeah. the ball forward and in as, a way yeah and as we often say too i think a recurring theme on the podcast is that when you look back i mean we're too young to know what it was like in the 60s or 70s but young young folks the youngsters they don't realize how lucky they are in the sense that 
political violence was much worse in the 60s. And then everyone's freaking out now. And there's all this catastrophism about the coming civil war, civil conflict. And, um, you know, if you had to choose between and also when it comes to racism that, oh, you know, look how look how bad America is today. We're a lot better today than we were in the 60s, at least maybe Demir would take issue with the way I'm framing that. But um, and it's always I think that Americans every 10 to 20 years, there's this slew of books about American decline. And we we can't get ourselves out of the moment. When we're in the moment, we can't see that broader context, which I think you're pointing to, that we always go through this wave of self-doubt and decline. And historically, we have been able to transcend that and get back on track. Right. Now, I think people maybe today, they would say, well, this time it's different. Right. This time the decline is real and it will stay with us and we won't be able to recover. And they use Trump, as you're saying, Demir, as basically the entry point to make that argument because they say this time is different because Trump is different, because Trump has no real parallel in those previous waves of decline. Yeah, well, you know, I think... I think it's a it's a very good thing for American history that Huey Long was shot when he was, since I think Huey Long actually was a greater threat as an individual uh, to the American system than Trump was. Um, and you, you know, he, it's if you haven't uh, read a good biography of Huey Long, hmm. um, because basically after after just a few years in the governor's mansion in Louisiana, he'd organized things so every state job and every penny of state funds had to be approved by him. He had a, a control over Louisiana that no American politician has ever had. And he had the, he combined the sort of rhetorical skill and performance skill with a real policy mind and a focus. It was, it was extraordinary. Hmm. Um, so it's not the, again, I would say even there, it's not the first time. Uh, obviously, Huey Long never made it as president, um, and I'm, I think his a Huey Long presidency would have been more consequential than Trump's hmm. term was. Hmm. Um, but look, I, I do think, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a rich question that you're, set of questions that you're asking. Number one, let, let me just say, somebody who does even remember the '50s, I am that old. Um, all my life, America has been in decline. When I was in elementary school, Russia had launched the Sputnik. Americans sucked at math. We were way behind. The Soviet Union was going to eating our lunch in space. And you could look up at sky and see, and the American space program was a failure. They ripped up the entire national math curriculum. So I was, you know, as an elementary school student, I'm taking math classes reflecting our fear of Soviet triumph. Then Kennedy gets elected on the missile gap. The Soviets are ahead of us in missiles. Missile gap fades and it's the balance of payments deficit. And Germany and for, you know France is eating our lunch. We're going to lose the gold standard and that'll mean the end of the dollar's roll and blah, 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 blah. Then the Vietnam War. America has lost its innocence forever. We've been defeated. We've been revealed. All of our crimes are out. Our innocent. We will never recover. Vietnam syndrome. Then Nixon. You know, and I'm even leaving out civil, the civil the riots of the '60s, the revelations of American racism, all of this stuff. 
All right. Then the 70s, oil inflation, oil stagnation, inflation. It just goes on. It sounds like it's terrible. I mean, I think it's it's incredible. Like when when you put it that way, it does sound like the the era before we were politically conscious was actually pretty terrible. Obviously, in the moment, you probably thought it was okay. Um, I don't know. I think no, it's a- I, I actually, you know, we used to worry. I mean, well, you especially- had Nuclear yeah, war, right? right? I mean, right. that was the thing. You were hiding from, you had nuclear duck and cover. We didn't have that. That's- right. Look, as a young public policy intellectual, I wrote many, many wonderful books and articles about how the American experiment was failing and this was a historic moment. Okay, this is, you know, we felt scared. We felt depressed. We didn't know what the answers were. So, I mean, what I will say now is I won't say that America isn't in decline and that our best days aren't behind us because, frankly, when we talk about the future, was it Yogi Berra is supposed to have said, prediction is always difficult and especially when it involves the future. <laughs> so, um, so I'm careful. I don't know what's coming. But, but when somebody wants to tell me this is it, this is the decline, all this, you've got to explain to me first why everybody was wrong in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 20s, and you know when they predicted this before. What, why is your prediction fundamentally different? And what I generally find among the sort of prophets of doom is that they don't really know this history of past yeah moments of fear. And so it's a naive prophecy of doom. I'm totally open to informed, well thought out and articulated prophecies of doom. And some of the things I talk about in the book are concerning, really concerning. But I, I do think there's, there's entirely too much, let's just call it superficial doomism. But I suppose one argument is that there's so much that you know, this is obviously idealized when people talk about how U.S. foreign policy was conducted in the past, but at least there was some pretense of bipartisan cooperation, some shared ideals that both Republicans and Democrats held when it came to foreign policy. And I suppose the argument now is that Republicans and Democrats are so divided in a way that makes competent or consistent foreign policy in any way very hard to achieve. I, 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 that's that's maybe I one know. version of the argument. I, do, I mean, Demir, is that is that a fair characterization of what some people would say on that polarization now means, okay, oh, foreign policy, um, partisanship stopped at the water's edge, this idealization, right. and now everything right. is okay. politicized. Answer that, Walter, because I have a different like right. spin on it, but answer that all one right. first. Well, well look, um, First of all, I'd say, actually, you know, you go back and you look at the history of the Truman years and the foreign policy fights in those years, and there was not that much bipartisan comedy. Richard Nixon, as Eisenhower's vice president, ran against Dean Acheson's College of Cowardly Communist Appeasement. And, you know, uh, while they didn't actually go with McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, Nixon, you know, the, the idea of communists in the State Department, of course, they actually were, though not nearly as many as um, as McCarthy alleged but the you know so there there was actually extremely bitter fighting there was an America first movement even after World War II so and I think the fears around nuclear weapons tended to make it it uh, worse and over the Vietnam War you had 
you know, hard hats union workers who supported the Vietnam War beating up student anti-war demonstrations on the street, blood flowing. Um, and you go back and you look at what people said and did about, you know, Lyndon Johnson is a war criminal. They put on a play, uh, McBird, uh, a takeoff on Macbeth with J Johnson having killed Kennedy in this evil plan to take over the country and fight the Vietnam War, et cetera. It was unbelievable. And, and um, you know, so there have been moments of, uh, you know, there have been areas of consensus but think about the Reagan administration, the fights over the, the Contra, the aid to Nicaragua, the Iran-Contra scandal, um, huge demonstrations, the anti-nuclear demonstrations in the early 1980s, amazing speeches about Reagan is going to bring on nuclear war and destroy the world. Hmm. So again, there's this idealized version of the happy, happy past. And now we're plunged into misery and polarization. This must mean the end. So the 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 thing. This is my spin on that, um, and it is from from you know something that, that I was telling Shadi right before you got here, Walter. The the I feel like it's something I've internalized from working with you uh, and and reading you all these years. Um, special providence. Uh, the way you describe how foreign policy is made is through this uh, heuristic of the four schools of thought that feed into and are inextricable from Americanism and that they, in some balance at any one point, they feed into what comes out of it. Um, reading this book, also, you get that. You, it's, it's a book about, once it gets into the 20th century, once it gets Truman on, it, it's, it's about how politics shape outcomes and how no amount of ideas or any single idea by itself actually shapes the final outcome. How it's it's the confluence of sort of a cultural background, um, the various ideas and things that drive various actors that then sort of lead to this. And so, you know, in, in that telling, um, it's almost as if the conflict and this partisanship and the divisions, um, no single one of them is quote unquote right Sometimes they win out one over the other. These are all sort of piecemeal conflicts that happen in politics. And then out of this emerges a kind of policy, which then again, you know, uh, in more in the sort of God and gold, your other book uh, uh, version sort of leads to and sort of surprises the rest of the world with America sort of, you know, uh, going on and triumphing nevertheless, almost despite itself, almost despite uh, its best and brightest thinkers and leaders who think <laughs> that they know what the hell they're doing. I mean, so that that's my sort of, uh, you know, that's how I approach yeah. a lot of this stuff, you know, informed. And it struck me again with this book. I don't know. Is that is is that fair, though? I well, look, I do say and I think this is this is an important thing to keep in mind that in my mind, American foreign policy has been on the wrong track in certain ways since the end of the Cold War, that fundamentally the American policy elite, Republican, Democratic, what have you, misread the nature of the change that came at the end of the Cold War. And I compare it to the era of the, 19, of, of the 1920s and 30s, when again, I think the Americans fundamentally misread the nature of the world they were in. Not so much because they were intellectually stupid as because they wanted to match 
they, they wanted to live up to their ideals, but they didn't want to do a lot of heavy lifting. And so they brought in magical thinking that we don't need to be concerned about the balance of power in Europe. We don't need to worry about the rise of fascism. You know, there are all these things that are going to make it work anyway. And so you were able to, uh, you know, thanks to a kind of ideologically imbued magical thinking, you, you, you could think that your foreign policy was going to get you where you wanted it to be because the world was basically moving in your direction anyway. And all you needed to do was give it a little nudge here and there. And I think we, we moved heavily into that after 1990. And, and so the American elite developed, you know, and not just the elite because a lot of popular folks were in it too, a very grandiose plan of global transformation. We were going to, the whole world was going to become democratic. The whole world was going to become sort of capitalist democratic. Gender relations were going to change everywhere. Religions were going to get along with each other everywhere. I mean, really, the most revolutionary and fundamental transformation anybody's ever imagined for the human race. And we were going to accomplish that while cutting the defense budget, cutting the foreign aid budget, cutting the, you know, we would do much, much less in the world than we did during the Cold War and get much, much more out of it in terms of the things that we wanted. And there was never a lot of public support for American democracy promotion around the world or anything. It's, you know, you look at the polls now, the sort of last thing on the list people want to send troops for is to promote democracy somewhere else. Um, so there was a tremendous mismatch between what the public wanted in terms of foreign policy and what, what the government was trying to achieve in both parties. And it was that, that gap was the elites thought it was okay because they genuinely believed that their goals were so achievable that you wouldn't actually need a lot of support from the public. It would just happen. Um, and the public, you know, wasn't that interested. It wasn't costing us very much. We weren't, you know, 1990, 92. All right, fine, we'll bomb Kosovo. But even that was like not easy to do to get the support for. Um, but it was just not a big deal. And then beginning with 911 and then going, I think, into the 2020s where Russia and China are really emerging and suddenly it's a much more dangerous world, you find the elites deeply embedded in a paradigm about foreign policy, which they've never sold. And now at the moment, their paradigm is, it's not working. The world is not, you know, free trade with China was going to make, and free trade with Mexico would make everyone rich and everyone democratic. China's not democratic, Mexico's not democratic, and Americans don't feel a lot richer than they did before NAFTA and the WTO and the security threats and 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 but to be but to be fair democracy did spread considerably like if you if you yep. look at the number of democracies the biggest increase of the past century happened right after right. the fall of the soviet union where you have transitions throughout latin america asia right. um eastern europe right. and so forth now there has been a, a little bit of a retrenchment I'd in say recent not years. Not just a little bit, I think, Shadi. But it's still a it's still a very high. If you look at the number of um, of electoral and liberal democracies as Freedom House rates them, 
it's still yeah. a very it's right. still pretty high. I'm not saying you know, I'm, and I'm not actually unlike Demir. I'm not going to rule out the possibility of progress. You know, as a you know, but I think that the you know progress is not a streetcar. It doesn't come stop at you know your stop on schedule, and to count on the arc of history to rescue your foreign policy, you know, is is dangerous and naive and will get you into all yeah. kinds of horrible trouble, as I think we've seen. Yeah. Uh, so, but that's, that's actually, you know, I mean, uh, as you and I were talking ahead of this Shadi, I, this is sort of what I, you know, it's almost a, a query to you. Um, because what, what, what's strong in Walter's book for me, uh, reading it is, uh, this very American belief in progress of this. And, and it's, 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 it's a religious belief in progress. I think it's rooted in scripture and, um, and you and I have talked about, you know, your conceptions of democratization and progress and the world going different place. And I think you're you're a pretty progressive person, you know, and you're you're an American Muslim. You're not you're that's that's the you know, um, you're very American in that way. So, I mean, I was just wondering, as you were reading it, to what extent uh, was that, you know, those those sort of did you did you identify yourself or like when reading Walter's description of America, did you? see your your own optimism and sort of your own i don't know um uh instincts reflected in the broader sort of s sweep of history that walter describes uh, yeah I, i'm very sympathetic to that basic um self-conception that america has a mission america is distinctive that we are a creedal country and maybe we can talk about this a bit more like what did you know uh, i think walter you, you know you, you've written that in a lot of uh, many parts of the country, to be American simply means to be someone who is an American citizen, who is born in America, who has a history there. And it's not necessarily about the creed or the ideology, this idea of democracy, and we represent the democratic idea and we should promote that right. abroad. Um, for me, that is important. And that is what stands out. And that's partly because I'm a child of immigrants that America isn't just a place that I was born. Um, it has an ideological content to it. And I think that in some ways it's immigrants who bring that idea more so than um, the white kind of salt of the earth Americans who have been here for 200 or 300 years. In some ways, we immigrants represent the American idea in a somewhat more aggressive fashion, in a very counterintuitive right. way, I think. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons the State Department mandarins in the Truman era hated the rise of Jews and Catholics in the American hmm. establishment, because they did bring a more ideological concept of America than people like George Kennan really yeah. wanted to see. Hmm. So this is, again, not new. What can I say? Um, and also, I mean, one of the interesting things about America is that, and I say in the book, you know, I, I grew up in a place where just about everybody had their families, white or black, had lived in America for hundreds of years and sort of couldn't imagine living anywhere else or being from anywhere else. So, you know, we were American the way some people are French, some French people are French or whatever. Um, and so for me, it was a voyage of discovery to find out there are actually people in America who think about it very differently. But what's interesting is, at least as I see it, I don't feel affronted. You know what I mean? I don't feel that or that there's something anti-American or fundamentally wrong. You know, America's a place where you can be American in your own way, and that's okay. 
So um, somehow that ability to accommodate different ideas of the country is very is is key to what makes the country work when it works. Yeah. But it also means that our foreign policy is going to be hugely contested because for some it's going to be seen as an ideological project because American identity is an ideological project and for others it's going to be seen as more like no well actually we're kind of like we are kind of like France or Italy and we should you know have a foreign policy that helps us that is us focused and you know let let other people's governments worry about their interests ours should worry about ours yeah and i and i would say just to kind of um continue the point demir that on the arc of history i don't i i don't believe that there's some kind of natural arc where things sort of automatically progress i believe you need power to Bend the, if we want to bend the arc, if we want to continue to use the metaphor, power is necessary for doing that. So where I agree with you, Walter, that a lot of a lot of the elites post Cold War, they they had these ideas, but they didn't realize how much had to go into right. it in order to make this actually happen right. and to sustain it. So where I come out on this, I don't blame them for having these grand ambitions. I maybe blame them for not for not understanding what it takes. And I would right. say, and uh, you know, I, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean that I uh, I support wars of choice right. like the ones that we had post nine eleven. So you're not reviving the neocon. No, no, faith certainly here. not. Certainly not. Reviving do, it and and putting blush on it. Maybe I, I do believe. <laughs> no, well, I, I guess I would say that. <laughs> I believe in democracy promotion, but not through military means. So when you say that there isn't American support for putting troops on the ground in a foreign country in the name of democracy, I totally agree. Americans don't want that. But if you look at the polls, Americans are generally very supportive. If you ask them, should America play some role in supporting democracy abroad? Do ideals matter? In that general sense, Americans do feel something in that right. regard. I, I would agree. I, th- I think the problem would come up when you have trade-offs. So yeah. which do you want? Oil, gas at $6 a gallon or democracy promotion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. right. So, and again, I think I think the if the elites had fully understood how hard it was to do some of the things they wanted to do, they would have also looked at American public opinion and there's some things we just can't do. Yeah. And would have had to adopt a you know, a more modest approach to a lot of different issues because it just, you know, that kind of sustained thing wasn't there. I mean, as, as you know, looking in the book, even after World War II, the first instinct of Americans was to come home, you know, and we demilitarized by 90%. And part of the book is about how Truman is facing this really wave of neo-isolationism right after World War II. And it's with great difficulty, even with Stalin sort of pushing across Europe, that you actually turn the, you know, turn Americans again toward engagement. Yeah. And and so there's a sense in, you know, America really is not an imperial country in the sense that normally, unless threatened, it tends to want to you know, live and let live, maybe like encouraging and promoting, but not doing any of it with a lot of push. Yeah. So where would you, I just, I'm just thinking about, where would you come out on the the Robert Kagan argument? 
which is to kind of paraphrase it and oversimplify it, that there is a correlation if we look at the past 70 years, whenever America gains power and becomes more hegemonic, that's when we see democracy, capitalism, and liberalism spreading. And as America, in the moments where America, American power declines, then we see the retreat of democracy, liberalism, capitalism. So if we want, if we want these things to continue having strength in the broader global order, then we should want American power to to reassert itself in some way. So when we look at the kind of the broader struggle with China, um, if China becomes more powerful and we become less powerful, that means authoritarianism will spread. And there is this kind of, it's not, uh, it's not a causal argument, although there is a causal element to it, but th- it does seem to coincide that there is this direct link. I would say, I mean, and, and this is something I talk about in the book when I get to the Nixon administration, where, you know, the, the when, when Nixon and Kissinger come into the White House, American foreign policy is, is at a very low ebb, and Americans just say, you got the Vietnam War, civil rights, it had gone, long gone into sort of riots and dissension, big pushback coming, Wallace vote, all of this, and very hard to pull something together. And the the... In response to that, the pushback from the Soviets and others is getting very intense. And so you have a period of time where they actually, they break a lot of existing American commitments, trample egregiously on human rights issues, and make some of the most cynical realpolitik decisions Americans have, have made. Some of them work out well, some of them don't. But in general, after four or five years, America is on a recovery path, and Americans who had been pretty well content to let them do what they were doing, suddenly we want to get human rights back. We want values, and Kissinger is ultimately driven out of office, essentially, by by both Republicans who want what they see as a more moralist, moral policy, which means more coherently anti-communist, and Democrats who want a more moral policy, which they interpret as more pro-human rights. So, you know, it is, it is certainly true that America's ability to pursue soft power or human rights kinds of goals, that rises and falls with the success of American hardcore geopolitical policy. Yeah. And it is certainly clear, again, without a question of rising or falling American power necessarily, but if we're actually facing a really long, bitter competition with China, you know, our policies toward human rights in, say, Burma and Thailand and Vietnam and the Philippines are going to have to reflect in some way, you know, you, they, you can't make human rights policy isolated from the geopolitical realities. Mm. You, that doesn't mean you push it off out of the truck completely, but at the same time, it can't be at the driver's seat. Ken Roth can't be at the steering wheel of the car when you the head got of human uh, human, of rights human rights watch, watch. yeah just for <laughs> okay yeah uh, you know you can't do it that way when you're you know in the same way in World War II suddenly you know to to defeat Hitler we are doing everything we can to keep Stalin up to that point the greatest mass murderer of the 20th century in power and give Russia you know you could actually call the whole war uh, Cold War blowback from our policy of supporting Stalin against Hitler, which was natural and necessary. 
So good, in my mind, this trade-off that people claim to see between evil geopolitical hard power stuff and, you know, and the nice power things is false. If you do, you, this is, I think it's a little bit different from Kagan's perspective, but I think if you, if you don't get the geopolitics right, if you're not winning World War II, no one is going to care about your beautiful plans for global organizations after World War II. So, you know, there are, there are you know, there, there are subjects you have to pass, and there are subjects that are, that, that you can only get to when you've passed the core. Yeah. But that, that's, that gets at, at, at something, again, about this, this, this kind of role of ideas in geopolitics that I always, you know, get my back up with Kagan, for example, because I, I, are you referring to this most recent piece that he wrote about World War II that actually Jamie Kirchick was talking to us about? No, recently? no, I mean, or just more, more broadly. More the arguments he's made and the juggle grows back. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Even, yeah, even the, in his previous books. The, yeah. the thing, the thing is that, that, that bugs me about it is, is this assumption that by, you know, uh, having a virtuous and moral foreign policy, it, 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 necessarily leads to us getting stronger. I think that's a weird corollary that sneaks into some of the more moralistic Kagan stuff, <laughs> is that when we are most virtuous, we are the strongest. And once we abandon our virtues, we weaken ourselves right. in some fundamental ways. This is not to say, of course, that, that, that um, from my perspective, using human rights as a cudgel, as a geopolitical cudgel, is not a uh, smart politics, often can be. But it's... It's it's that, but again, I I keep coming back, Walter, to to the thing that's that's uh, you know always gets me spinning in a circle uh, on this sort of stuff is that question of where's American policy, right. policy come from? It's not it's not it's not Kissinger even at his height that he was really in control of everything and was right. however however much he thought he was, or Nixon himself. They had a lot of influence, but still they were they were fighting their own fights and ultimately got swept away by other forces that ended up leading to Reagan ultimately, right? Well, which is, again, you know, that's the natural case of all politics everywhere is that nothing is permanent. You know, everything changes. You can't step into the same river twice. Fine. Um, look, I guess maybe the th maybe I should just sort of come clean and say the way I think about foreign policy really, I would say I would call myself, to the extent I call myself anything, a Christian realist, sort of in a Niburian sense, where on the one hand, it seems to me that the that as as a Christian, um, I would see moral claims as absolute and non-negotiable. You know, they're they're inherent in the in um, the will of God, and and human polit polities and politicians must you know cannot uh, conduct themselves ignorant of that or or openly flouting it. At the same time, humanity is fallen and flawed. Hmm. And if you make, you know, you you would be blind, stupid, and actually counter to morality if you tried to make policy on the assumption that everyone is nice and friendly and just wants to sing kumbaya. You actually, you know, you are you are fallen yourself and you are working with fallen you and your adversaries and your friends. And so your structures are always going to be imperfect. Your insight is always going to be limited. Uh, there is always going to be a transcendent judgment uh, by which you are never going to be completely square. 
but you, you know, and in that you must be guided by the various duties that you have and to safeguard the people who have entrusted you with office to protect their physical security, their economic interests and all of that to do that. Yes. But then also to recognize, you know, that that's complex process. You can't just go stepping on other people. So in a way, it, it, to me, this, this approach is a way that allows you to grasp the complex realities of the world and yet also to acknowledge and even place at the center the moral, the categorical moral imperatives that, that I think all of us as human beings at some level do feel. I call this Christian liberalism because uh, realism because Reinhold Niebuhr yeah. d- did it, but I would say it's not something that one has to be a Christian to buy. In fact, Arthur Schlesinger at one point said he wanted to form atheists for Niebuhr. <laughs> uh, so it's, um, but I think there is a tradition of in American thought that actually finds a way to make intellectual sense of these different pressures. It does not then point out the path of policy that you should take in every circumstance. That's, you know, and this idea, and maybe this is some of your criticism of Kagan, Demir, but it's very widespread uh, that there are a lot of people in the world of foreign policy and outside of it who think that foreign policy is like an academic subject. If you, if you do all your homework, you will pass the test. And if you apply the right principles in the right way, the result is always going to be good. And if so, you found this, I, in, when I was a kid, you saw it in Vietnam. There are a lot of people who thought, okay, well, the mistakes of Vietnam were X, Y, and Z. And so we must never do those again. And if we never do those again, things will be good. But in fact, and I think you can see it in this generation, there's some people say, okay, the lessons of the Iraq war, and they will now govern every possible future contingency. We can never do what Bush did in 2003. Well, there's some things I hope we won't do, but you can't, each, each contingency comes to you on its own and you will never get it right. You know, in foreign policy is, is a, is a sport. It's not, an academic exam. It's an art. It's not a science. And nobody ever gets it right. You can be the smartest person in the world. You can be a genius at foreign policy. You know, and like Bismarck, you still end up annexing Alsace-Lorraine, which ignites this French bitterness that never goes away or whatever. Um, It is not given. No administration, no secretary of state is going to sort of get America's position in the world and the world itself to a position of permanent happy stasis. So, and that that cultural expectation, I think, is actually one of the real problems in in the way you know in our public discussion of foreign policy because we hold people to we have the, and it, by the way, it reflects partly our horrible fear of nuclear war, climate change, and you know it's terribly insecure and unsettling to realize that there are no guarantees that we're going to get things right and that the stakes of getting it right might include the survival of the human race. This is a enormously existentially unsettling fact, and, it, and I think it powers a lot of the will to believe 
certain ideologies about foreign policy and other things. Because if I'm out there where there is no certain path forward and the end of the human race is real, right, that's bad. This is, by the way, one of the things I think it helps to be a Christian realist as opposed to an atheist realist is that there is, I believe there is a God who I have no idea what, he, what he's up to or what his plans are, but there is a God who, who is watching and who ultimately who deals with what, what, what needs to be dealt with. But if you don't have that and you just see human error, human weakness, and the prospect of human doom, Life is terrifying. Well, I mean, Demir doesn't have God, so I wonder how <laughs> what Walter just said applies to you. No, life is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. He's right. <laughs> but I'm Slavic, so we laugh about it. That's why. Slivovitz. Slivovitz. That's right. Down, down the hatch. Down the hatch. Well, so, so you know... Um, Walter, I, you know, towards the end of the book, and, and maybe we can sort of look ahead now. Um, you, you you note again this 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 lack of optimism that is overtaken. We've talked about this. That in fact, it's a it's a it's a broader malaise that seems to be afflicting America right now. And you've written about it as well. The the roots and sources of it, um, the kind of changes. The we worked on this a lot at the American Interest, diagnosing the death of the blue model, the 20th century economic arrangement that, that let America thrive as it is, and everything we've talked about in the podcast right now about foreign policy. Um, I guess uh, two-ish questions. One, um, uh, how do we get the optimism back? And and two, maybe then, is is what's Biden doing wrong in, in his sort of assessment in this, and why are we... why? What, what do you think is in their minds and how they're dealing with, with both the reality of what's happening and the sort of post-Trump um, moment? Okay. Well, let me talk about that one first. Um, it's a little bit easier to talk, more limited than like, how do we get the optimism back? <laughs> uh, uh, like I think uh, I, my impression of uh, the president and the people around him, the top national security people, is that they are intelligent, patriotic, thoughtful, um, deeply concerned to do the right thing uh, and very, very skilled at a lot of the sort of basic stuff of diplomacy um, and, you know, experienced in and, and can do a lot of things that, that Trump could not do in terms of building up the architecture for a policy, moving it through both the political system at home and the uh, diplomatic system abroad, all of that stuff. Um, and so, and and there's clearly been a lot of benefit to that in American foreign policy. But <laughs> you think there's a but coming, Shadi? <laughs> um, you know, but it, you know, but I don't think you know if if you if you look at what they thought they they where they thought they would be a year and a half in. All right, Russia would be parked. That is, they'd have reached some kind of arrangement with Putin that would kind of keep the U.S. Russia thing from boiling over. Iran would be in the JCPOA and the Middle East would be stabilizing around that and the US would be moving out of the Middle East. And with those things calm, they would be able to sort of focus all of their attention on the China issue. That was the that was the plan and the goal. It was and that so far that is exactly the Obama 
administration playbook. And, and you know, where we are now, you know, I, Russia isn't parked and it doesn't want to be parked. Iran is not at all enthusiastic. Again, Russia, China, and Iran all perceive themselves in a geopolitical competition with the United States. They're all much more worried about the United States than about each other. And so one should have expected that Russia and Iran were not going to sit patiently by and allow the United States to focus on China and, you know, work its will on China, at which point presumably would come back and deal with the secondary threats. That, in fact, they would see that plan and try to disrupt it, as they have done. Um, so, you know, that conception was sort of assuming that everybody else would, you know, would everyone else was stupid and would collaborate with our approach. Um, yeah, and and again, you know, you look at so so. There's a kind of a an absence of political of, of an under an intuitive understanding of international of the of the politics of international. And I suppose you could say, I mean, there's also an assumption that if you if you approach things the right way, people and countries are yes. reasonable, and there is this kind of built-in faith. That um, and this we're all uh, rational actors. Yeah, here. yeah. And right. this was all, you know one of my big criticisms of Obama. He, you know, I think he had a similar approach. Um, if at just, home and abroad, yeah, and just through the force of his personality, just by Obama going and saying the right things, other people would respond in precisely right. the way that he hoped. Right. And he and I think he also had a lack of awareness that, for example, I'm going to build a bridge between America and the world of Sunni Islam, and I'm also going to sign the, uh, a nuclear agreement with Iran at the moment that it's rampaging in Syria. Um, yeah. You know, just like not understanding that you can't do both of those at the same time, even though you could wisely argue that both of them are good in themselves. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, you know, that sort of lack, just, just lack of something. Um, and then, you know, I look at it in a sort of, you take one episode, and the administration has said a lot, and, and they did achieve some really good things, you know, they, you know the, with their warnings about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and beginning to build the European consensus and so on, a really very aggressive and, I would you know, unconventional use of American intelligence hmm. of like letting everybody know the Russians are saying this, the Russians are saying that. And that's good. And, and, you know, and it was meant to deter Russia from the, from attacking. But if you look at what they were simultaneously doing, they were pulling American diplomats out of Ukraine. They were offering asylum to Zelensky and they were in every possible way demonstrating that it was their belief that Russia would, in fact, succeed in that 72-hour lightning strike. Okay, that combination showing that our intelligence is much better than you think and that we think you're going to win, that incentivizes Putin to attack. Yeah. All right? That is actually the most, you know, the most sort of alluring signal toward an attack you could send. In fact, I'm surprised that some people haven't said, and that's how we cleverly sucked Putin into a trap. Um, 
which I, people did say about Obama's policy in Syria, Syria that yeah. we cleverly sucked Putin into the trap in Syria. Yeah, Ru- Russia will be in a quagmire, and Putin doesn't know that his intervention in Syria is against his own interest. Right. Obama would always, he would sort of be like the analyst in chief. Exactly. He would act like a think tanker, and he would like assess things as if, oh, you know, Russia is making a mistake. They'll realize it because they're going to get into a quagmire, and it just... Right. It's that kind of thinking, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we're seeing it again. Um, and again, others looking at that then discount our ability to respond to other things. Um, and discount, I mean, I think they also, they they discount the ability of this administration to be reelected and to continue with power. They, they sort of see them as bad at power. And I write about this in, in the book where, um, sort of Kerry is going around the Middle East saying to the Palestinians and the Israelis, we understand your interests better than you do, <laughs> right? And they're looking, Libya's in flames, Syria's in flames, you know, Russia has conquered Crimea, and, you know, they're looking at the Americans and saying, you people are clueless idiots, but the Americans are still sailing around like we're General George Marshall telling Europe how, how to recover from the ashes of World War II. And so that mix of unearned arrogance uh, and actual cluelessness about what the interests and calculations of people on the ground actually is, you know, meant that their prestige was, you know, well, they just didn't get very far. And it, it, I think, you know, permanently or long term cuts American prestige. And so when we say to people in the Middle East, well, you know, if you op- liberalized on human rights, um, you'll, you know, your, your regime will be more stable. And they, they will look at you and they'll say, you have no idea how this, you may be right, you may be wrong, but you are definitely clueless. And we're going to make our own calculations completely independent of anything you say or do. So on on optimism, then are are you with Bismarck on uh, special on, providence? On special providence. <laughs> Look, I uh, um, I do. I I get you know I I'm temperamentally an optimist in that, um, and I guess I'm religiously an optimist in that I do believe not just you know I don't think there's a special providence specifically for the United States necessarily, but a special providence for the human race, that uh, the one who makes us, act, made us, actually does like us and wants us, wants the best for us, and will from time to time cheat, you know, to make it better. Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, that I can't, prove it, point to a lot of things, but it, it does feel to me, whether I look at, at, at my own life or life of society around us, human history, something is pushing us to be better than we are and to, and to do more than we think we can do. That doesn't tell me, you know, that how we're going to get North Korea to, to disarm its nuclear program or, you know, how we're going to um, find a way to uh, fight climate change. I, you know, it doesn't translate into some like, okay, now I have, I, I've derived a religious program for, for fixing things. Uh, in fact, I remember saying at various points, when I hear that the president is talking to God, I feel good. 
when I hear that God is talking to the president, I feel bad. <laughs> That's good. That is really good. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so um, so I do actually think that this, you know, that that there are reasons for optimism. Um, well, Walter, what you just said sounds very progressive in a sense. You know that God that because of God's presence in history in our current world that that allows us to believe that things will get better and that we'll do better and that we're capable of being better. But maybe just, I, I guess that's, you know, more or less the right characterization of what. Yeah. yeah. But, right. But, I, you know, again, I, I can also look at history and say that he's, his patience is not infinite. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you know, we do, um, we do sometimes make it hard for him to help us. So I wonder how just how this might apply to the rise, the continuing and seemingly endless rise of China. I guess people have been talking about the rise of China perpetually for quite some time that, you know, in some fundamental sense, if if the Chinese if the Chinese regime's way is contrary to what God wishes for his creation and. You know, I tend to believe that's the case in, in, in the sense that we're talking about an atheist regime, a regime that commits genocide, so on and so forth. If I don't love to use the word evil, but if I if I had to sort of use it and apply it, I would say that the Chinese regime can fairly be described as evil. That just, you know, my you know, my my opinion. And um I, I see Ronald Reagan sitting across <laughs> the the room from me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so so in that sense, if there is, one could then conclude that we should be optimistic if, if it's about the confrontation between the U.S. and China, if the U.S. is more aligned with what God wills for us as his creation, that in some ways we can believe that over time it will work out better than we fear. I, I You know, I mean, look, I think... Um, there's so many ways in which we're not well aligned, you know, that if it's, and I don't, you know, Shadi, I don't know if this is a difference between Christianity and Islam where sort of Christianity puts much more of an emphasis on the sort of common failure of all humanity and sees much less distinction in gradations of success or failure. To me, what you're, what you're saying sounds a little bit dangerous and leading to a kind of a self-righteousness and, and I wouldn't say that you exhibit this, but a, but a, <laughs> no, but a, no, 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 seriously, but a kind of a sort of moral pomposity yeah. that yeah. has caused a lot of damage in the United States yeah. in the past, right? Uh, so um, I think what I would say is that uh, there is something in the nature of the universe that likes freedom, uh, and there are very high costs when you begin to to subtract and, and oppress it. Um, I, you know, I, I was once uh, at a meeting with uh, Fidel Castro back in the old oh. days in Cuba. You, you were hanging out with Ca Fidel Castro. Yeah. Um, wow. This is back in the, during the Clinton administration. And it was, uh, I think it was a conference over the 50th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs and invasion. 
and there were these there were these conferences that people had after the Cold War, where his where where each government would declassify documents about a particular incident or period, and then officials who lived through the, through that and historians would get together and kind of try to go over the record and you know figure out like can we learn anything more about what happened? I, I went to some of these and they were quite interesting, uh, but in in this particular one. Fidel, one afternoon, basically just started telling war stories about the Bay of Pigs. And they weren't interesting war stories. They were like, remember, Jose, you and Miguel were behind the truck, and then Jorge came came by on this, and you jumped up, and I pulled you down. And it's like, you know, that level of reminiscence, Mm. right? And there are all these people around, and there was a performance of the National Ballet of Cuba schedule that night that we were going to end up being like hours late for and everybody in the whole town being inconvenienced. And he all was this. notorious for like speaking endlessly for hours and hours. Oh, my, you know, this is only one of the stories I can tell you about <laughs> that. But, um, you know, but at one point he looks around the room and he says, am I talking too much? Oh, and all the Cubans in the room go, no, Fidel, keep talking. We love it when you tell these stories. All right. Okay. And this is just one very small illustration of how power corrupts, um, that you don't get feedback and everyone needs feedback. And that would suggest that's a fundamental weakness with the Chinese regime. I'm, if we know, want to extend, or how, how would right, you sort of care? Right. I'm wondering... If you're a Chinese banking official and you don't think the way current policy is managing the real estate problem is is going to work, uh, do you actually are you going to be the one to tell Xi Jinping, you know, your housing policy is going to break the Chinese economy? Um, or, so, or with Putin and invasion. I mean, there was those right, right, remarkable we, scenes where he gathered them all around and right, exactly. So. So leaders, you know, even in Democrat, I'm, I'm not sure that people just casually come up to President Biden and tell him you've got this all wrong in the White House. But I think on the other hand, you know, Fox News will tell him uh, and other places will, will get out there. So I do think that there is, you can see how there's a degradation of performance and that it tends to be cumulative. Again, I don't think you can, you cannot trust the arc of history like a streetcar to come just at the moment. So, you know, will China collapse just when it helps? It's most helpful to us that it collapses. Or will it collapse on our timetable? Will it even collapse or will it just mutate? I can't tell you. But I, but I do think there are, that there are problems with these systems. In our, one of the reasons I think people tend to see that perpetually are, you know, see American decline as, as out there is that when things go wrong here, and even when they don't go wrong, but some people think they're going wrong, we get a tremendous hue and cry. And, you know, trouble is more newsworthy than, you know, the Department of Sanitation had another good day, with not a <laughs> single accident. This is not a news story. Right. But, you know, rotting sewer pipe explodes in Fifth District. Oh, that's that's big. So, um, you know, so to some degree, we get we get a reverse flow, but that may be helpful. Being over hyper aware of your flaws and your fallibilities may focus your mind on trying to fix them. 
And so I would actually, I wonder whether our, the decline syndrome that I've seen since I was a kid in America hasn't actually been part of the, the sort of cultural system that keeps us moving forward is that we're constantly having a nervous breakdown about how much trouble we're in. Decline helps propel us forward. That's it. You've, you've just you've just given us the title for the for the episode, Shadi. Walter, thanks so much. This was great. Thanks, thanks. Walter. Thank you.